And then we um, got in a boat, a little canoe, and we were 12 hours in that canoe to make it, make it to where we spent the night. And we on slept a on a river. We pulled up beside a little, little empty boat float in there, hung our hammocks out, spent the night in, the, in this boat, just wooden boat floating on the river we could hang our hammocks from, a little larger boat. And we traveled for another about four or five hours the next day to get to where we were going. Hey everyone, welcome to the third episode of What in the World. My name is Jake Lee and I'm going to be your host of this podcast where we talk all about what God is doing in our backyard around the globe, really wanting to just see him moving. And we're doing all this through the lens of Elmbrook Church, which has a long history of engaging people outside its doors. So I also just wanted to preface this because I'm very much aware and grieved by the murder of George Floyd future podcasts are going to dive into this, but right now I still wanted to keep releasing the stories that we've already recorded of what God is doing around the globe, because I believe it's something we really need to hear right now. Mission is always both local and global. It's a both and not an either or. God has always been on the move and we need to remember this and pray for that. So that's why we're going to continue with this. Today I have the privilege of interviewing Phil and Valerie Polson in Brazil. But before we dive into their interview, I first wanted to take a moment to share about some cultural blunders that people make in Brazil. And once again, we are doing this section because God uses imperfect people for his work. And he has throughout the entire story of the Bible. And I find this fun. So let's dive into a cultural blunder story. People fall into this mistake who are new to Brazil, and you're talking to people, you're in each other's homes, and people are very warm and friendly, mm-hmm. and you may be staying over. You may be in a guest house like we do here at our, our mission headquarters, and, and you're sharing a small space, and so you just start brushing your teeth. And it's not unusual for Americans to use the kitchen sink, right? I mean, of course. Do you? Yes, of course. If somebody's in the bathroom, especially. Yeah. And, but not in Brazil, absolutely not. And so many people, many expats make the mistake of they're standing there talking to these wonderful friends you're just making and then they come out, brush their teeth and they use the kitchen sink. And that is that is not to be used. Even more horrifying, and I've seen <laughs> mothers do this, is they wash their babies in the sink. Yeah. You know? Yeah, of course, yeah, why I mean, not? Yeah, in my mind, I, yeah, of course. And that, no, that's the kitchen sink. You 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 don't use it for things like that. That's how. That's very. It's only for bloody meat and chicken guts and things like that. <laughs> so but don't put no. your baby in the sink. <laughs> yeah, or your, your toothbrush or spit down the sink. It is not for that purpose. You can go use the. They have another where they wash clothes. Often times be a laundry sink close by. That's fine, but not the kitchen sink. Yeah. So that that's a common <laughs> mistake that's made. And um, honestly, we're. We're very careful that we're no one's looking when we do it because I confess I still brush my teeth in the kitchen sink. Yes, which is pretty hilarious that when we, you know, we're spitting in our own sink in our own house, but we yeah. always have a little look out the window to see if anybody's watching. You are worried that you're going to be judged for brushing your teeth in an improper place. <laughs> Correct. It kind of reminds me of like, well, is this a thing in Brazil too? Like in America, you would never eat anything in the bathroom, even though the bathroom is one of the probably the most sanitary rooms in the house that you're cleaning and whatnot. You don't eat there. Is that the same in Brazil? Mm, probably. I've, I've never, I've never had that discussion to yeah. know. I've never known anybody to eat in the bathroom. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's just across the board. But in my mind, it's been like, it's the one area of the house that's like, you know, it's completely taboo. Like you don't eat there, which kind of makes sense. But it's also technically one of the cleanest rooms in the house. <laughs> <laughs> correct, correct, yeah. Yeah, we're all a little, a little um, 
And some of our standards are a little, if you're honest about it, a little, a little bit messed up. They are just cultural things that develop and then we stick to. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. Well, today um, I have the privilege of talking to Phil and Valerie Polson. So we are going to be talking um, to you guys about um, your time in Brazil. Um, you guys are the field part of the field leadership team. You guys live in a city called Manus. How do I say that? Manaus. Manaus. And there's about yes. 2 million people. And you guys also have five daughters. And you wrote seven and a half grandchildren. How does that work? <laughs> well, um, our daughter Annette, our second daughter, is expecting her third child in July. So that's On the, the half. <laughs> On the way. <laughs> Not quite here yet. Right. right. I was, I've known you guys for a little while now. Uh, before we dive into this, I kind of want to know, what is your background in Brazil? You guys have been over there for a while, but Phil, you've been there even longer. What's kind of your story just in a nutshell? My father is from the UK. He met my mom, who's from Wisconsin, and they came to Brazil with my oldest sister. And then I'm the third child, and all the rest of our of the kids were born here in Brazil. So I was born in Manaus. This is actually my hometown. Oh, I didn't know that. Born. Yeah. <laughs> this is where I, not just, I didn't grow up in this city, but this is the city I was born in. And so my parents also were with, at that time, it was called New Tribes Mission, and they worked with the Yanomami people. Uh, which is a very large group of people. Um, they cover a vast area. I was raised, I grew up working with a different dialect, but the same people group that we later worked with. So my, 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 my life, all my life growing up has been here in Brazil. This is where I was raised, uh, where I went to school. I only went back to the States to find a Wisconsin girl to marry. <laughs> I think it's funny. You were like your dad. You went back to Wisconsin to find someone to marry. <laughs> yep, yep, absolutely. And so how long have you two been in Brazil together? Uh, we came down as a married couple in 1991. June 6th, our anniversary. I always remember it. Yeah, D-Day. <laughs> D-Day. <laughs> it's how he remembers our anniversary. <laughs> what a way to remember it. And you guys yeah. have been working, like, when we talk to people sometimes like you guys are actually in or were in the jungle like in the deep jungle with tribal people that you got to form relationships with and live with uh, tell me a little about that tribe when you both were in brazil that you previously worked with okay so for 15 years we worked with this people group called the anamami um it was not the same location where i grew up at it's a different place different dialect quite significantly different in the language like maybe portuguese or spanish if that makes sense Mm-hmm. And that is that is the that's where we worked for 15 years. We were a part of a team who were there with them, and so they were they were there before we got there. And, but we were there at the time when the first believers, the first church was formed. That the church was began to grow was formed. Then uh, we were very involved in medical work. My wife and I. Yep. That's a l- large part of what our ministry was involved in medical work. Um, this is not part of the main. Well. I still want to ask these questions because I think they're fun. So when I talked to you guys beforehand, you mentioned that your first few years in Brazil, how many daughters did you guys um, have in those first few years? Uh, when we came to Brazil, our daughter, Lene, our oldest, had just turned two, and Annette was six months. Then our first year that we lived here in Manaus while I was doing Portuguese study, well, Phil too, but um, then we had our third daughter, Caitlin, and then uh, two years later, well, then we went to the village and worked in the in the Yanomami village. And we had our fourth daughter. 
And then when we went on our first home assignment in 1995, I was expecting our fifth. Part of the reason I bring that up is just one, it's fun to hear just how your family has grown in your journey. And like you guys, it wasn't like you were just going to Brazil for a short time. Like you guys were fully invested in this tribe. You were raising your family with this tribe. This was, this was your life. And so obviously you guys are no longer with the tribe in that area anymore. You're in a bigger city. Uh, tell me a little about what you're doing right now. Okay, before we close out the other conversation, Go first, I just wanted to add, add one thing because it, it um, relates to Ellenberg very closely. And we came back from one of our home assignments. We were leaving some kids in the States and coming back with, a, with one or two left. And we had a conversation with Ellenbrook. Wait, mm-hmm. you mean when Lene graduated from high school? It must have been, yeah. yeah. Okay. And I remember the church, uh, the, it was probably the regional committee. I don't remember who exactly it was. You know, said, how, how can we as a church, how can we assist you mm-hmm. as you go back? And, and we said, well, things are changing in our lives. Our children are growing up. Um, they're, they're leaving home. They're leaving a very, um, in some ways, in some ways, sheltered environment, moving out to the country they've never really lived in. And we're not, we don't feel like God is calling us to return to the U.S. to help them make this transition. We, we have work we're involved with down there, but Elmbrook has been our our home church, our sending church, our, our church family. And you guys have done such a phenomenal job of supporting us and caring for us while we've been overseas and we come back for home assignment. But what would it look like if Elmbrook continued to provide that home for our mm-hmm. adult children as they leave our home? And it's just been really beautiful to watch over the years how Elmbrook has done that for, for all of our kids. Um, two of them, obviously, one's living in Germany, married, one's living in Wausau, married. But the three that, but all of them attended Elmbrook, were involved at Elmbrook, and the three that are still there still consider Elmbrook their church home. And we are just so appreciative of how Elmbrook has had a very big part in, in our daughters as, as we return to Brazil to continue serving here and our children turned, became young adults. That, that security, it was Elmbrook people who taught my daughters how to drive a car, how to open a bank account, yeah, how to rent, rent a house, you know, mm-hmm. how to, all those little things that MKs just don't know about. And it was all people, gave them a place to stay. They lived in different people's homes for a period of time. All Almost all of them did. Mm-hmm. And it was just neat to see the church stepping up and doing that in formal and informal ways, providing that network, that, that security for us as we returned to Brazil. And... Our girls are doing great. So we really appreciate that part that Elmbrook had in their lives and in our lives too as a family. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. Like one, it's really cool that the church has been able to be with this journey with you guys or on this journey with you guys, what I'm trying to say. And it's cool for me to step into it just a little bit. And it's also fun for me to hear you guys talk about how like in some sense your daughters were sheltered because they were missionary kids overseas. But also, like, from I've watched some of your family videos of you guys having to take um, the bugs out of your daughter's feet, <laughs> jumping across yeah. rivers and playing with animals in the wild. And it's just really fun. Like, because I mean, in my perspective, and I think a lot of people, if you haven't been overseas in places like that, it's like that's not sheltered. But in your perspective, which is true too, they were sheltered from sp- some things. Um, so it's kind right. of a different environment they were growing up with why they needed um, a family back in America when they were back here to help them as they moved forward. So yeah, what about okay, your current so situation? What are you guys doing now? We were asked by our leadership team as I joined the leadership team to move to the city and to be working here out, out of Manaus because um, as an organization, we work among many different people groups in the Amazon. 
you know, we have field worker teams in all those different locations doing everything from some medical work, um, literacy, mm-hmm. uh, church planning, learning language, culture, translation. Uh, Bible translation, education, teaching. It just runs the whole gamut. And we have we have many, many, many missionaries in many different locations. We have a whole team of people that help as consultants, as leaders, giving guidance, direction, um, member care. Uh, there's just so many different things that, that we're involved in. So that they asked us if we couldn't help with that. They needed help in that area. Sure. And it was it was a it was a hard transition for us. We did not want to leave the village. We were excited about what was going on there, what was what we yeah. got to be involved in, a part of a wonderful team. So it was it was a very hard transition to make, but we felt that God was clearly directing us that way. And it's been really fun to be a part now for wow, when did we when did we actually start this? Two thousand seven was when we left the village. Then we had a year of home assignment and then we had a year where we were filling um, in as dorm parents at, at school. At, at oh, gotcha. So we moved here in two thousand nine to Manaus. So you guys went from being um like kind of frontline practitioners working with people, building relationships with the tribes, planting churches. And then now you guys have kind of transitioned into that role of coaching those who are doing that um, throughout Brazil. That is correct. Um, not throughout Brazil, throughout four different states in Brazil, just the north. Yeah, Brazil's west of Brazil. huge. I mean, yeah, yeah, even me saying that, it's not a small place. <laughs> so that's, that, that's a good description of what we're doing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Brazil is actually larger than the continental United States. I know that, but it's just funny. Like (laughs) even me, like I feel like to think of myself as, you know, thinking about the world more, but at the same time, I fall into the same traps. It's like when you talk about other countries or I hear people talk about China or India or other parts of the world, not realizing that, you know, the U.S. could basically fit inside a lot of them. When in the world. In this part of the podcast, I want to look back over Elmbrook's long legacy of being involved in things outside its doors, being involved in God's mission, because I want us to understand the legacy that we are stepping into of the many people who have gone before us that we now get to step into and be part of. Right now, I want to take us back to 1973, where Elmbrook started its emphasis in pioneer church planting and Bible translation. This was a big shift for Elmbrook and the mission community as a whole at the time. Many other churches began to focus in on places, sending their missionaries, or we call them field workers, into parts of the world where there are people that had no church and had no Bible. And two of the big players during this time, and still right now, is New Tribes, now called Ethnos 360, and Wycliffe. And these were the main two sending organizations Elmbrook went through to send their field workers out. And if we want to look at just one organization first, Ethnos 360, through the work of the people that were sent out, Elmbrook was directly involved with the planting of 11 churches and the translation of 11 Bibles, where all of the New Testament was completed and portions of the Old Testament were translated. And then if we jump into Wycliffe, it gets a little messier when we talk about these numbers. Problem is you have some individuals who are working on helping translate eight different languages. So when you look at the people we've sent to work with Wycliffe over the years, they're supporting these people. They're helping 
translate clusters of languages, translating clusters of Bibles. We are talking up to a total of 250 different Bibles that Elmbrook was part of translating. Does that mean that we were directly involved in translating 250? No, but we played a part in those 250 translations. So these are just two different ways to look at it uh, in these two organizations. One, we're looking at direct translations, which was 11, and in the other, we're looking at translations we were involved in, which is 250. And honestly, I'm still trying to nail down the exact numbers that we were directly involved with, but the problem is you're looking at 40... 40 plus years pushing 50 that we've been involved in doing this. And so a lot of that information is difficult to track down, but I just wanted to share what I had found so far because I found it really compelling the fact that for this many years, we have been involved in translating so many Bibles that now God's word is available to people who never previously had it. What we do involves, there's two main aspects to it. Um, one of them is we do, we are involved with administrative work here in the city, working in an office. We're not on lockdown like we are right now. And we do a lot of correspondence, my wife especially correspondence with um, in English. Our field is predominantly Brazilian. Probably 70, 80% of our missionaries are all Brazilian nationals. Portuguese is very much the, the language we all speak. Everything happens in Portuguese, everything we do. So when we're in the city, it's administrative stuff, meetings, um, uh, correspondence, a lot of hospitality, but we also travel extensively. So when we're not in the city, we're traveling interior. Um, I think I've seen you picture some of our boat rides and airplane rides and cars and buses and um, you name it because it's a vast area that we cover. So, and and when we're doing that, we're helping our, our missionaries um, out in the village, we're meeting with um, one of indigenous churches with church leaders. Uh, we don't speak those languages. We only speak Portuguese and Yanomami. Sure. So if we're not traveling to a Yanomami village, everything we do with indigenous people has to be through a, if many of them are very limited in how they can use Portuguese. So we have to work through the, the local, the, the, the field worker that works there who speaks their language. Uh, but some of them speak a little better Portuguese. But everything we do is through our, our, our field worker teams with, with indigenous people and with direct with the field worker teams. Could you guys share a story just of what it's like when you enter into um, a tribal community that you haven't been, you, you have no relationship with, like you haven't been there before. Some of your field workers or other missionaries are in there. What is that like to enter into that atmosphere? You're coming as a visitor in those situations. Mostly visitors are well-treated, especially because our people, our, our field workers, our missionaries are, are really emphasize the whole area of relationships. Um, everything is based on relationships. So they have a great relationship with these people. And you're coming and they put you on a pedestal because you're the leader coming to, you're the big chief coming to, sure. to talk with, their, with their, their field workers and that. So usually we are very well-treated because of how the hierarchy of, of, of things work in tribal areas and whatnot. But you are a visitor. But the place we go back repeatedly, we get to know these people, and we get to have a, a good relationship with some of them. We've, um, especially in places where they have a functioning church, uh, I've got to know some of those church leaders well, where I can interact directly with them on on a leadership to leadership level. Some of the pastors, leaders, and so um, the more times you go, the more you become known and you know them. So it's 
Um, usually, it's it's very good relationships. We, we, you know, they, they're certain they have expectations of us. That's always a, a fine line to have to walk, and what their expectations are, and how they look at that. But we have, we're, we're very well received because we have people there who have relationships with these people. That makes sense. So you're baby basically able to enter into these spaces because someone else has already built the relationship, and you have a relationship with them, so that gives you credibility. That is correct. It's not like you're like we're the new young couple moving in there to open up to work with the people, develop relationships. We're piggybacking off what others have done, and our, our that is our role. It's not just. I mean, obviously, we interact with those who are who are with the church, or even if there's not a church. So we want to maintain those good relationships, you know, and work with our our, our field workers. But it's not like we're a new young couple moving into a new place where we're not known. Sure. So what I kind of wanted to turn the conversation to now is I feel like we have a little bit of a background info on you guys. What is the current situation right now in Brazil? Like we're living in a time where the world obviously is trying to react to COVID and that has affected you guys as well. So would you like to elaborate a little? What's it like in Brazil right now? In in Manaus, our city in Manaus here, we as as a, a as a mission, our mission organization, we started working from our homes on March 23rd. And that weekend before also was when we um, got all of our field workers out of their village uh, positions. We have eight support bases around in these four states so that, you know, like as guest homes and places sure. where our, the missionaries would normally go uh, for a rest or anyhow, they all evacuated out to these towns and everybody's hunkered down in these places and everybody's doing well. Thankfully, um, with internet and WhatsApp and uh, even phoning, we've all been able to stay connected, um, sending prayer requests, a lot, of, a lot of information going back. And everybody so far is doing very fine. So as per our field workers and us as a mission here, we are fine. Um, yeah, working from home. Phil does a lot of video conferences with his leadership team, make sure everybody's doing well. One of the things was a concern was finances because a lot of the Brazilian churches, a lot of our people come from churches that are sort of smallish. Sure. And if you're not meeting on Sunday and you're not putting money in the offering, then that church is not receiving any money and therefore they can't be su- supplying their missionaries also. So that has affected a lot. So um, we've done a lot to figure out who's okay, who, who needs groceries, you know, whatever, those kinds of things. And that's been very proactive too. I'd like to say that the leadership team was very proactive in following how things were happening in that last week before the, you know, the 23rd, that was the huge week of like daily, hourly, things were changing and, you know, what should we do? And at first the thought was, you know, if you're in the village, stay in the village. If you're out of the village, stay out of the village. Mm -hmm. No, no going between. But then when the news came out of Italy and it seemed like this could go on for months, it was, became really obvious that um, we need to get everybody out because, there's no way to supply them. What if there's an emergency and that kind of thing? And also more importantly than that even was to protect the indigenous people to not let there be any crossing over of them possibly contacting it. So that was utmost in our thinking. So um, that was good. They immediately got the word out. Yeah, that is Come good. On, let's, yeah. Yeah. In, in the Amazon here, Manaus, where we live, has got the most cases of COVID-19. 
Um, and so we've had our shared deaths. We all know people who have passed away from it. The, the healthcare system in Manaus is completely broken. It was already close to have was struggling already because we have in Brazil this year we've had what was it 500,000 cases of dengue already. We've had like 400 some deaths to dengue. We have chikungunya, malaria, typhoid, all those other kind of stuff. Zika. Zika, everything else. So, yeah. so you're already at a breaking point and then this is just puts us you know, over the top. And so the healthcare system in Manaus, which is already kind of precarious, especially the, the public health system is, is, is in collapse. And so we don't have a humongous number of, of deaths. I mean, we, we, there's plenty more than we need. But it didn't take a lot to really push us over the brink. So it's it's been hard. We've had some missionaries who have been sick with other things. Um, simple things. The lady the other day cut her hand in a fan just to go to the hospital and get stitches. Puts her in tremendous danger. And the hospitals are full of people on, in the in the in the hallways. Everyone, you know. So it's yeah, that no more beds, no more beds, and, and that kind of thing. So it's not just COVID nineteen. It's any kind of accident or other problems you may have gets, you know, exacerbated tremendously because of, of the, the collapsing system. So, Yeah, which makes sense because, I mean, when you're talking, a lot of the people you're working with, when you're working with tribal people, they don't have access to, for, I mean, from my understanding, a lot of the medical things that you would be normally more readily available for a normal Brazilian. Is that correct? Um, not necessarily. Not really. No. <laughs> Correct me then. <laughs> there's, uh, if you're indigenous, there's a lot of money that is, that is spent, um, on, uh, that comes from external sources, whatever. So, so, you know, sure. I'm not saying it's, it's first world health for the indigenous peoples, but there's a much more than you realize. It's actually quite a robust healthcare system for the indigenous peoples in Brazil. Okay. Yeah. And so it is, it's neat to see that, you know, so they're, they're, it's not easy to do over such a broad, huge area where most access is by canoe and everything else, but they have they have a quite a robust, it's not perfect, it's far from it, but it's not um, useless. Sure. So the main issue isn't that there isn't some sort of healthcare system. What is the main issue, I guess, I'm trying to understand? Okay. If you remember back to your history in the Americas of what happened when the Europeans came and how many people died from diseases, okay, the indigenous peoples in the Americas had not been exposed to disease that was European diseases, not that this is European, but outside diseases. And so historically, from the beginning, there's been a huge amount of death as they've been exposed to and died from diseases. Measles, smallpox, I mean, measles more recently, not smallpox isn't in the past. And, and even for our experience in the tribal working in medicine um, with the Yanomami people in the early years when we were first there, any little cold, we never got colds in the village, but they got all of them and they just don't have the resistance to those kind sure. of things. And so as we vaccinated people extensively, we saw the resistance increase tremendously and it became much healthier. The question that nobody knows the answer to since no one's been exposed to COVID-19. So are they going to respond to COVID-19 like they responded to simple colds in the past and just die in mass because there's no resistance, but we don't have resistance either. So our, is, yeah. you know, nobody really knows how they were going to respond to an outbreak like this. And so we already had one Yanomami boy, 15 years old, that died in the city of Bo, town of Bo, sure. city of Bovista of COVID-19. And that was really like, okay, how, how, how much will this affect the indigenous people, especially living in remote areas where you can't get help to them? And so there's a huge concern that they're going to have much less. Is we don't have resistance, so we're not haven't been exposed to. It, but what about them? Well, that we more, nobody really knows. It's just questions. And so there's a huge concern that 
um, they will be much more, they'll be more susceptible to it than even than we are. Well, who knows? But right now the deaths that are occurring, like in Manaus and stuff are the, the people who live here. And yeah. one thing that adds to this whole issue here is we are as a city sort of in lockdown. I mean, people are told to stay home. Lots of things are closed, but how this affects Brazil is way different than the United States because there is no buffer here. Um, they've already had a bad economy for the last four or five years. And right now with this, generally speaking, a lot of people, um, they, they are, they're street vendors. They sell what they have for today and that's what they eat at supper time. So the economy collapsing and people not being able to work and, and go out and just sell their little things that they would daily sell is pretty horrific. So that is a huge issue too, is how is this going to affect people? Because there's going to be hunger, of course, sickness because of that, weakness because you're not getting good food and care. I mean, that's a huge issue. And I mean, when you're talking in places that, like you said, the economy hasn't been great, if people are le- living hand to mouth, their daily income is what feeds them at night. Being in lockdown, like that's a huge repercussion for them. Like that means you don't eat. And that affects all kinds of other of the social fabric, you know, whether it's going to be crime, um, domestic abuse, it just affects everything. So yeah, it's not, we have yet to see all the imp- implications of what's going to be happening. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is, it's a lot of unknowns kind of across the board and even across the globe. How is this going to pan out? Why in the world? In this section, I want to focus on why do we care about mission? Why do we care about people who haven't heard about the gospel, people who are vulnerable, people who are impoverished? Uh, why, Why do we care as Christians? Why is this even important? Last week, I talked about a personal experience I had in starting to understand these things. But this week, I want to just land on a Bible verse. I was kicking around different verses. There's a ton that talk about this. It's scattered throughout the entire Bible, God's plan and how we're supposed to be involved in it. But I thought, why not land on one that some people find cliche, but it also is cliche because it's one of the most direct calls we have to this. And it's the Great Commission verse in Matthew 28. So let me just read it. This verse has greatly shaped the course of my life. Uh, Similar to what I said last week, these are things that have changed the direction of where I've gone, where Jake has gone, and so many brothers and sisters before me, and I think so many after me. So yeah, let's, let's read the verse. So Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is one of the most clear calls and the last thing Jesus is saying before he leaves. And he's giving this commission to us. It's the end of the book of Matthew, end of one of the gospels. And he's saying, go, make disciples of all nations. And that word nations is not just political nations that we see nowadays. It means every tongue, every tribe, every people group. It's a very specific word um, when you go to the original text. And we're supposed to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teach them make disciples. That means teaching them to obey what God has commanded. How do you understand the word? How do you apply it? And the best part of this, which honestly is a part that I've left off at the end a lot, 
but is what Jesus says at the end. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We're commanded to do this. We're told to go out. We're told to make disciples. We're told to baptize. We're told to teach. And then Jesus reminds us that he's going to do it with us. We're not alone in doing this. This verse is so specific and so clear, and I feel such an important one for Christians to understand. And I'm barely unpacking any of it right now. I'm mainly just reading the verse. But I just want to encourage you that we do this because it is close to the heart of God. This is what God has called his followers to do. This is what Jesus told his followers to do. This has been why in the world one thing i did want to focus on too is you guys have been having to pull missionaries out of the local churches they've been part of or helped with um and the tribes how are the local churches doing or could you share maybe a story of one of the local churches and how they're faring in this time without the missionaries there anymore it's just been really exciting to watch that happen it really has been it's been neat to see how some of those churches are faring especially ones that we have more contact with some of the places are so remote and they don't have internet. They don't have, obviously, there's no phone contact. So we're not sure in some places how they're actually doing. But um, in some of the places that we do have contact through WhatsApp because of internet in the village or something like that, it's been really neat. The stories that have come out of there of, of, of churches really pulling together. Um, we, I think particularly of one church that I've had a lot more contact with over the years, a very mature, growing church. And uh, it's been just really fun to see now as the, as the field workers have pulled out. And uh, this is already a mature church, but they were doing their own teaching. They had their own leaders. Uh, the, the field workers, they're doing more translation work and some discipleship. To see how this church has really recognized that Christ Jesus did not leave with the missionaries. He's here with us. Mm-hmm. And to see them realizing that as leaders, we need to step up. We have the responsibility to, to, to shepherd the flock, to care for the flock. In some cases, there were a few leaders that were not doing well spiritually. And it was a, it was a turnaround point for them. I've seen a number of um, adolescents, teenagers who've actually come to Christ through this. And, um, and we've seen the church pull together around them. The stories that we hear coming from the, the field workers living close to and the close to the context, not in the village, but they're having connection with them through through phone or whatever. Sure. I've been very, very encouraged through what's happening. It's going to be neat to see how God is, is going to work. You know, we we so often look at ourselves, we're indispensable. You know, what can happen if we're not here? And we realize that it's just such a myopic view of who God is and who sure. we are. And, and the part that it's just his church, it's not our church. It belongs to him. And, and to see that Christ is the head of this church. It's his bride. And he's the one that's maturing and growing his bride and taking her through situations that he knows that through that he's going to grow her up or make her more like him, more beautiful. Hmm. And it's kind of neat to see that happen and see in some ways um, we're incidental to that. He's going to build his church whether we're there or not. You know, he uses us. We have to be involved in the, the privilege of being involved in what he's doing. But he's also, it's not our church. It's not our baby. It's his baby. And it's fun to see him raising up those leaders and, and, and those people within the church. And it's just a, it stretches our faith, but helps us recognize how big our God is and how capable he is of caring for his people. It is neat because Phil's using this example of this of this one group and the stories we've been hearing coming from there. Uh, the two missionaries that are working, field workers that are working with translation, still have contact. And so their, their work, they are able to continue from the city, continue to 
do translation work with the people in the village. So for them, it really hasn't, I mean, they aren't physically there, but still the translation work that they've been doing is ongoing. So that's great too. Yeah, that's a big deal that that's still able to continue in a time like this. Now in areas where there aren't, it isn't a church. So there's very few believers in that. I And we have very little context. So I'm sure there is some very difficult situations also that we are not aware of. Um, the place where we used to work, there's not easy access. We heard that things are okay. The, one of the, the main leader there said that he's doing good, he's doing okay. But um, so we really don't know everywhere how things are going because some places are just too remote. We don't have any connection to know what exactly is happening there. In many cases, those lives who are just um, either they don't know the Lord. Um, a lot of them are very terrified of what this means. Um, with as animistic um, people who are who look at spirits and and um, disease, it's all interconnected, and this is very terrifying for them. So we need to pray for them. Mm-hmm. In some cases, there's young believers who have been who have very little teaching and we need to pray for God to protect and care for them and, and just, you know, continue to entrust them into his hands. All these peoples, you know, we're there for these indigenous peoples. And, and so we do have concerns also. You're seeing some really good things happening where you're seeing mature churches that are realizing it is their chance to step up and helping also the field workers understand that, like you already said, this is God's church. This isn't their church. This isn't just their baby. Like the, yeah. God is raising them up. God doesn't need them. He's used them. But now this indigenous church can step up to the plate. But then you're also seeing other circumstances where you just don't know lack of communication and very infant believers. I would love it if you guys could clarify that we've talked about kind of the remoteness of a lot of these tribes. Could you guys just like paint a picture um, of how you have to get to some of these tribes, like in a little more detail, I think that'd be helpful for people listening to this to understand when you talk about remote, because a lot of times my idea of remote is very different than what you guys are experiencing. I think a, a good explanation would be what I we would tell our daughters, um, just their experience of getting to go to school, because they went away to a boarding school. And um, so the trip for them was they would leave the village in the morning, the plane would fly in, a little Cessna 206, fly in, and all five of them hop in the plane and go out. And that was a two-hour and 20-minute flight over Amazon jungle. Then they get to the city of Boa Vista, and they would stay overnight there. And then the next— Or that night. Or that night. Yeah, that's right. And the flight would get there in the afternoon, and then if, there, if it was available, because there were other— uh, field workers' children that would take the bus with them. They were coming in from all of the villages and coming to Boa Vista, which was a base area. And then they would all go on the bus, night bus, from Boa Vista down to Manaus. And that's a 12-hour bus ride, and it crosses wow. the equator. They go from the, nor- you know, the north of the equator to the south of the equator, and they get to the city of Manaus. Then a taxi driver would pick them up, from the bus station and drive them 40 minutes through the city of Manaus to a little teeny town uh, 40 minutes away. And from that town, then they would get into a speedboat and take a 20 minute ride down the Amazon River to get to their school base, which (laughs) was on the Amazon River. And we sometimes freak out when our kids have to get on the bus by themselves. (laughs) (laughs) Slightly different worlds we live in. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah, and another example is a trip that Valor and I did in October. It's October. We, we left our home here. We took an um, airplane to the city of Hubaranku, which was a you know hour and ten minute flight, hour and a half minute flight. And from there, we get got in a car and drove for 
oh, I don't know, four hours over a really lousy road to a small little town. Spent the night there. Spent the night in Hubenonko also. So it's, each, each of these trips takes a day. You have to stop in between. And then we um, got in a boat, a little canoe, and we were 12 hours in that canoe. Wow. To make it, make it to where we spent the night. And we on slept a on a river. We pulled up beside a little, little empty boat floating there, hung our hammocks out, spent the night in, the, in this boat, this wooden boat floating on the river. We could hang our hammocks from a little larger boat. And we traveled for another about four or five hours the next day to get to where we were going. So that was two and a, one and a half days on the river to get to the village where we were actually meeting with the field workers. It could, travel can take a long time. Is there anything that you guys wanted to share that I haven't asked or a story that you feel people should know about? You talk. I can't think of anything. <laughs> I know as soon as you're done talking with us, I'll think of a hundred things. Hey, we can yeah. do this again. This doesn't have to be a one-shot deal. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, there's so much that so much that we could share and talk about. Um, I mean, in, in regards to Brazil, we're, if we have to be on lockdown somewhere, everyone's on lockdown, virtually everywhere in the world. This is not a mm-hmm. place, bad place to be because we get to hang out with some really neat people. Our our local church here in Brazil, Manaus, because we're a part of a, of a local body of you know, the local community here. Yeah. Also, besides our mission community, we have our, our, our local church. And it's been just a, a pleasure to be involved with them. We, we've been involved with them through, you know, social media and somewhat. So we, we miss all them, being physically close to them. But um, it's just been, it's, it's, it's been really neat to see how uh, the church in Brazil, I'm not talking indigenous church, I'm talking about the, the national church, the Brazilian church, has has really stepped up. It's been fun to see the the different videos coming out to see how the how the church is engaged. Um, things you would never see in the U.S. Yeah. where people go out on the street all apart from them, instead of protesting, they're praying, they're singing songs together, they're yeah. they're singing songs across the high rises of the São Paulo Christian yeah. songs out of their windows. You know, across the kilometers apart. You know, you can hear it going. It's just it's been neat to see how how the Christian community in Brazil has responded to this. Mm-hmm. And um, also people coming to know the Lord, you know, very fearful. All of us, the U.S. embassy has gotten in contact with us. Do you need to evacuate? Do you need to leave? We're like, no, what would I go back to the U.S. for? Yeah, it's not see- exactly fun here right now. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> well, what's different back there than here, you know? We so just we're, have, we're, we're very happy to be here. I mean, you guys have your own political issues, obviously, in Brazil, but America is a very tense political area. <laughs> it's not very yeah. fun. Yeah. yeah. But it is, I mean, like what Phil said, too, there are a lot of people who are fearful and questioning. So yeah. it is a marvelous opportunity for we believers, too. I mean, of course, we can't do it face to face. But many opportunities using WhatsApp and, and Skype or whatever to talk with people, to share Jesus Christ with folks. And, and like you said, the Brazilian church is really, they're out in the street, you know, and yes. or singing out their windows or whatever. And so I think it is a wonderful opportunity and we really need to grasp hold of that and, and do it. Yeah. Well, I mean, that right there is a perfect challenge, I think, to people listening to this. Is there anything else you'd like to encourage people or have people maybe take away from this talk that you'd like to share? Well, there's that one thing I wrote down, I wrote to you there about, you know, in a crisis like this, our tendency is always look inward, you know, Mm -hmm. am I safe? You know, am I okay? What's my future going to look like? How is this going to impact me? You know, crisis always causes us to, you know, circle the wagons and how do we protect me? And that's natural. We all, we all do that. We've done that here. You've done that back there. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm not trying to encourage us to do anything that's unhealthy, that's unsafe health-wise. 
But I think that that tendency, we need to try to be aware of that while we do need to watch out for our families and our communities and, and understand that staying socially distant does protect everybody. We understand that. But the tendency sometimes is to to look so much inward that we forget that God has us here for a reason. And I, I, the illustration of, of, of Peter walking on the water to Jesus is a great one, you know, where you think about, you know, in the midst of the storm, this crisis, and they're terrified. They see Jesus come up and he's, they probably think at first it's some kind of a ghost, you know, and that's just what Jesus communicates is, Peter, get out of your little safe boat. Keep your eyes focused on me. Get out and walk out into this world. I think in some ways that's what Christ is calling us to do also. Our focus should not be on us. Our focus should not be on, on our safety and our protection. It should be on him. We can do two things. We can focus on us or we can just focus on the COVID-19, but that's not where our focus Our eyes should be on Christ. When our eyes are on him, he wants us to get out and see how can we impact our world. It's, 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 it's a scary world. People are terrified. There's We don't know what it's going to mean for us financially, what it's going to mean for us health-wise, what it's going to mean look for us you know, down the road, but our focus should be on Christ mm-hmm. and a willingness to get out as we keep our eyes on him to walk out there in the midst of that, of that storm-tossed, confused world that he's placed us in and be careful that our focus is not always inward. Like I said, I'm not talking about being doing things that are unsafe. Sure, sure. Um, obviously, but, but our focus should be outward at this point, not inward, and that's, that's important. I like that. I like that idea of like, because as Christians, are we supposed to operate out of fear or out of hope? And that doesn't mean that we don't take precautions. Like for Laura and I, we've talked about it. We're making certain decisions because we want to protect those who are vulnerable in our society and most susceptible to COVID. That being said, I'm not going to make a decision because I'm afraid. If I do something, it's because it's helping someone else. But more importantly, it's trying to look at what would Jesus do in the situation. It's keeping my eyes fixed on Jesus. And I really like that outlook. And I think that's one of Christians could start to really move in that direction. Like, I don't know how that looks for everyone in every context, but if that's actually where you're just sitting and looking at Jesus, you can then start taking those steps and then God will show you what, how are you supposed to move in this season? How are you supposed to affect the world in this season? And I think that is a really healthy attitude. Very well put. Well, I got it from you. I'm just reiterating what you said. (laughs) 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 Thank you, guys. You guys are awesome. In conclusion, um, Phil, Valerie, thanks for taking time from Brazil um, to chat with me. I'm excited to get this edited and get this out. That's all I have. (laughs) Do you guys have anything fun planned for today? With some communication with people and whatnot, I've been trying to take my afternoons. I I don't know if we told you earlier, but we were doing a remodel on our little apartment. So I'm, I'm, I'm puttering around there, making screens, working with wood, you know, trying to get some stuff done there. And that, that kind of just a, that change of I like doing the two things and I'll get some work done in the morning and the afternoon to try to yeah. focus on something different. That's, well, it keeps you sane because, I mean, if you're just staring at a computer screen in the season, I feel you're a little nuts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like, you just sure. little, like I'm going yeah. nuts a little. But like for me, it's not the remodel. It's the I do this in the morning. And then I go out there and play with children and play goldfish with uh, Minnie Mouse Disney cards. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, That's my life. Hey everyone, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of What in the World, where I had the privilege of talking to Phil and Valerie Polson. I have had so much fun getting to know them over the years. They're such a fun couple with such a cool story of just obeying God and following him. And they just love Jesus. For me, I find it a privilege to be able to get to know them, to learn from them. And I hope you learn something too. Uh, this podcast, 
I started it because I wanted to see people's perspectives brought in on what God is doing and what's happening in the world. And I hope that this is doing that for you. I hope that you're able to see a little bit more of what God's doing around the globe and not just in your own life. But at the same time, I want you to be able to apply it in your life. And Phil and Valerie talked about how we as Christians are called to live a life of faith, not just live comfortably and to hide. Like they said, in this time of COVID, we need to take precautions in certain places. Of course, we want to watch out for others and make sure they're safe. But we also need to be willing to step out in faith, to trust that God is in control and that we can follow him and that he's going to take care of us and use us how he wants to. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please comment. Let me know other things you want to be hearing. Like it, subscribe, uh, share it with other people who you think this might be beneficial for them to hear about how God is still moving. God is not stopped with anything that's happening right now. And in our next few episodes, we're going to definitely be diving into what's happening in our nation right now uh, with George Floyd, um, him being murdered. What does that mean? How do we respond as Christians? And I definitely want to be getting some voices of our African-American brothers and sisters. After that, we're also going to be going back to an interview I did. I got to hear all about what's happening in India right now, which is still being hit very hard by COVID and just sharing more about that story of what God's doing globally. But because God's mission has never been about just global or local, it's not either or, it's a both and. We also definitely want to be spending a significant amount of time talking about what's happening in America right now and how do we as Christians respond and what are people already doing? There are already Christians doing amazing things right now who are loving their neighbor, living lives of self-sacrifice, and how can we learn from them? So thank you so much for tuning into this podcast. My name is Jake Lee, and this has been What in the World?